Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I actually, oh, look at that. We have slides. Oh, I know. Amazing techno technological advances here at Ainsford going on. Um, but I hope everybody's doing well this morning. Um, a very common thing you hear about when you're involved in missions in any way is this concept of calling. Like if you are ever interested in missions or you ever end up talking to somebody about going into missions or you meet with a missions agency, somewhere along the line, someone is going to ask you, well, what do you feel called to do? And last week we started looking at Nehemiah and if it wasn't apparent from what we studied, Nehemiah has a calling. Like we talked about how he got this report, right? About how Jerusalem is in shambles and he is gutted. And I also want to remind you that Ezra and Nehemiah, those two books together actually form one cohesive story. And also the report, the thing that we're reading about in Nehemiah 1 is actually happening about 50 years after the events of Ezra 1 when the Israelites returned. And Ezra 1, right, Ezra starts off by saying that the prophecy, the words of Jeremiah are going to be fulfilled. This is the moment that Israel's been waiting for. They're going to be brought back to the land. It's going to be the time where God's going to restore the nations, that he is going to set up his kingdom and reign on earth, that this new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied will, be, will begin. And yet, we're 50 years after that, and Jerusalem is still in a state of shame with its walls torn down and its gates burned. Nehemiah then mourns over the state of his city and he prays to God because I'm pretty sure from that moment that he heard that report, he knew what he was called to do. He knew that he was called to go and restore the city. And so he, he does what most people do when they feel called to do something. First, he, he spends time praying to God and asking God for an opportunity to do what he feels called to do. And it, actually, we get, we're given some dates in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and it shows that Nehemiah has been praying and waiting for an opportunity for about a month before he finally gets his chance before the king. And last week we talked about how there were all these coincidences, right, that all lined up so that he would have just the perfect opportunity to request what he wanted from the king. And really we talked about how that's, that was just God working behind the scenes. And so now Nehemiah has been given everything he needs to put his plan into motion, and he heads off, and that's where we find ourselves. And we are in Nehemiah uh, chapter 2. I know Rachel passed some Bibles around, um, if you, or you can turn on your Bible if you do it that way. But please join me in Nehemiah 2. We're going to start with just verses 9 through 10. They say this, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I've heard the story of Nehemiah, I know at least when I first heard about it, I kind of pictured Nehemiah as this kind of like lone gunsman. Like he heads out from, heads out to Israel by himself. He shows up and he's this one man wall building machine. But that's just not true. That's just not how it worked, right? As we can see from this, Nehemiah is actually kind of important. Because he comes with letters from the king, and he also comes with an actual escort of the army. He has, he has officers, he has um, soldiers with him. 
And I point that out because he's coming with authority, and that's going to be important later on. But we also get the first hint of trouble in these two verses, right? You'll see that there's these two guys, Sambalat and Tobiah, and they're not happy that Nehemiah is coming. And you might be wondering, well, why is that? Why are they upset about this? Well, remember, I talked about this last week, in the overarching story of Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah building the wall is actually the third part in like this trilogy of restoration projects. And the first restoration project that we read about is actually the rebuilding of the temple. And when the Jews came and they went to rebuild the temple, as they're starting out, all these different people that were already living in the land came to them and they're like, hey, we've been following Yahweh, we want to help out too. But the Jews say this in Ezra 4.3, they tell them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the, to the Lord, the God of Israel. Right? They basically just exclude them from joining in. And this response doesn't go over very well, as you might assume. Um, it ends up being a, a source of tension between the groups, and it actually causes the temple to be delayed and being rebuilt. So when Nehemiah shows up 50 years later, the fact that we're reading that there's these two guys that aren't happy, it shows that the relationship is still very tense there. But here's the question that we should be asking when we read about this in Ezra, is that did the people do the right thing? Were they correct in turning away the people of the land? I mean, again, the beginning of Ezra tells us that Ezra and Nehemiah is about fulfilling the words of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah does say this in Jeremiah 12, 14, thus says the Lord concerning all of all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit, behold, I will pluck them up from the land. Okay, so you read this and you think, okay, so God's, God prophesied that he's going to pluck the people that were already there out of the land, so maybe, maybe the Jews got it right by excluding them. But if you only stop there in Jeremiah, you might think that, but Jeremiah keeps going on and he says this, and after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land, and it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. So when you look at this, yes, it's that God does say he's going to pluck up the people, but he says there's a greater purpose for that. He says that the purpose is so that he can actually bring those people in with the people of Israel, that the people of Israel should be teaching them how to follow Yahweh just like how they taught the people of Israel to fall away from Yahweh, and that if that happens, they can be built up in the midst of God's people. So then again, we must wonder, well, when they were rebuilding the temple, was there more to it than just building a building? Because they did succeed at creating a building, right? If, you're judging, if your judgment for success reading through Ezra is that they succeed in whatever they're building, they do that. But it seems like there was more to it. It seems like they didn't understand what that building was actually supposed to do. And so remember this as we go back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah shows up in Jerusalem, right? So he's gone off. He shows up in Jerusalem. He has this entourage in tow. But notice there's a, he's going to handle 
talking with the people of Israel very differently than how he talked to the king. So let's read Nehemiah 2, 11 through 16. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So Nehemiah actually at first is kind of secretive. Like I'm sure people were wondering already why he showed up in Jerusalem, like what's going on. But instead of telling people right away, he takes some time to actually find out what's going on, right? When he was talking to the king, it was still kind of theoretical, right? His, all his answers were like his plans of what he wanted to do, but now he's actually on the ground. He's actually assessing the situation. And Nehemiah, while he is a man of action, we see that throughout this story, he's not a man who gets into something before he knows what he's getting into. So he heads out, and again, Notice he didn't do it by himself, right? He had a few people that he really trusted with him. And after he does this late night inspection, he gets the people together and he's finally ready to tell them what he's been planning this whole time. And that's what he does in verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they understood, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now, the ESV, which is the translation up here, I don't know what translations you have in the Bibles actually, but um, it has this word, it explains that his reasoning for rebuilding, right? It says to, that they would no longer suffer derision. And that word derision there is the Hebrew word karpa, which is just the word for reproach. It's the state, it's a word that is used all over the Old Testament that's, especially in the prophets, to describe the state that Israel is going to be in because they've rebelled against God. And a reproach is just something that it's like, when you see it, it's disgusting. Like it turns you away because of the state it's in. Like I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you stopped at a gas station or a services and you went to the restroom and, it, and the restroom was a reproach to you, right? You did not want to go in and do that. That's the picture of this word. And in fact, Jeremiah likes to use this word. He says this about um, Israel right before his section about Israel's resurrection in 24.9 he says I will make them a whore to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a reproach see for Nehemiah his explanation his thing isn't about security right you might think oh he's rebuilding the walls because he wants to secure the city but what we can see is he's not talking about security he's talking about the honor the reputation what 
they have endured. And for him, rebuilding the walls is a reversal of that. It's a way to take away the reproach of Israel. And so what he does is he has that vision. That's his calling. He's going he's gonna to build the walls to take away uh, the, the, the reproach. And he shares that passion with the people. And notice they do respond positively. But I do want to take a quick look at how he goes about getting the people on his side, because I think it's a good lesson for us today, no matter whether you use this in church or whether you're managing people or whatever, I think this is a great lesson for how you encourage people to follow after you. First, notice that Nehemiah didn't force his calling on the people. Remember, he shows up with the authority of the king. He shows up with the army in tow, he could have easily shown up and just be like, guys, we're rebuilding a wall. You're going to do the work. You have to do this, right? He had the authority to do that, but he doesn't do it. Instead, he asks them to join him. He also doesn't try to manipulate them necessarily through guilt or something. He's not like, hey, it's been 50 years. What have you guys been doing or anything like that? But he encourages them to join him. He wants this not to be forced labor, but them working together for a shared goal. And notice also that before he asks them to join him, he gives them a clear vision, a clear goal of what they're seeking to accomplish. And in his sharing, he gives them both an emotional and theological reason. And one thing that also stands out to me about this is that he doesn't give them a long explanation. He doesn't have to go over and over all the things that he wants to convince them because he's just, his passion is probably just flowing out of him. He's able to say a clear, concise, like, this is what I want to do. And people probably see him and know by the way he's saying it, by the way he's acting, that he wants to accomplish that. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to accomplish it. Whenever we feel God is calling us to do something and we want to get others on board, we should be like Nehemiah. We should seek to get people to buy into our vision so that they want to serve and not feel like they're being forced to work. Because there's a big difference on how somebody works if they want to be doing it versus if they're feeling like they're forced to do it. Like, for example, in the States, when you go to uni to get your bachelor's degree, they have these things called um, general education classes. Basically, they're like your A-levels here in the UK. And honestly, for pretty much every student, they're just things that you need to check off so that you can get your degree. And usually they don't have anything to do with what you're actually studying. They're just kind of random classes, general classes that you have to take. So when you have a bunch of classes that you're all taking at the same time, those are the classes that you're going to put the least amount of effort in to because you're going to value the classes you actually want to take more. Like when I was in uni and I was taking a directing class, like, I, I made sure that I spent a good chunk of time planning out my various film projects. I, I was studying all the different techniques. I was writing stories. Heck, the day before the final day of class, I actually stayed up all night long watching the computer because I was watching it as it exported the final version of my film, and I had to make sure that it succeeded because if it somehow died in the middle of the night, I needed to be awake so I could try to restart the process. On the other hand, I had to take a physical science class while I was in uni, and I figured out pretty quickly as I started that class what I needed to get to get the, what, the minimum work I needed to do to get the grade I wanted. 
and I actually made it work out so that by the time I took my final exam, I only had to get 50% of the questions correct. And so when I took that multiple choice test, I didn't study for it. I just went through it real quickly. If I knew the answer, great. If I didn't know the answer, I'd just guess. And I got more than 50% on the, on the exam and I got the grade I wanted, right? There was a large difference between the amount of effort I put into my directing class versus the science class. And for Nehemiah building this wall, that's his film class, not a science class. And he wants the people to feel the same way too. Nehemiah, has, he shares a simple but passionate vision. He cared deeply about what he was called to do, and it showed to all who were around him. And what we can see is the people joined him in his vision, and they were ready to do what was needed. Because I think Nehemiah knew he needed to get them to buy in, because I think Nehemiah knew that it wasn't going to be the easiest thing rebuilding this wall. And when I see his passion about how he, how passionate Nehemiah is about talking about building the wall and bringing honor back to Jerusalem, the convicting thought that pops in my head is, do I talk the same way about Christ and the church? Like when somebody asks me if I'm a Christian, is there a passion that flows out to me, out of me when I'm telling them, yeah, this is why I believe what I believe? And an even more convicting thought uh, that really gets to me is, are we sometimes more excited to share about like a restaurant or a movie or a book or a game or anything else than we are about God? All right, well, I'll leave that thought to you. Let's wrap up by looking at verses 19 and 20. They say this, But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So we were already introduced to two of these three guys that aren't happy about Jerusalem being restored, but we have a third person that's added onto the list now. And what's interesting is you have a guy in, um, in Sambalat, who represents the people of the land that have been in there since the exile. And then you have Tobiah, who represents a people that historically have been fighting with Israel since they left Egypt. And then in Geshem, we actually can see by historical records that he actually ruled over a kingdom that stretched from the south of Israel over to the east of Israel. And what we see in this is we have the representation of really the nations coming to Nehemiah here. We have somebody representing the nations living in Israel. We have a person representing the nations that used to live in Israel. And we have a person representing the nations that live outside and around Israel. So once again, just like in Ezra 4, we see that there's people coming to the Jews and now they are coming a lot more aggressively than they did back then. But this is also the first time that they're interacting with Nehemiah, right? This is the chance that Nehemiah can give them a first impression. He has a chance to build up some diplomatic relationships. He could respond in a bunch of different ways, but he doesn't go down those roads, right? Now, Nehemiah does say a great thing, right? He first, he starts off by saying, God's going to let them succeed. He knows what, who is going to be the one that supports them. But instead of then inviting them to partake in with that God, he then tells them, you don't have any claim here. Which may sound familiar to you, 
because it's very similar to what the people said back in Ezra 4. And this brings up a challenging question that then we must think about, which is, did Nehemiah do the right thing here? Right? It's that same question that we, need to, we needed to ask back in Ezra. Because see, if you haven't picked up on it, Nehemiah is pretty singular focused in his goal. Right? When he gets the report, the big part, the report is focused on the fact that the walls of Jerusalem are torn down. And then when he talks to the king, he talks about the walls of Jerusalem. And then when he shows up and he does his little inspection, he focuses on the walls of Jerusalem. And when he gets the people together and he shares his vision, his big point is building the walls of Jerusalem. Like if it hasn't become clear, Nehemiah's calling is these walls. And you may also have noticed that Nehemiah, this section of the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's all written in first person. It's all Nehemiah's perspective. So while, yes, the people did come aggressively, there is a little bit of a how aggressive were they because Nehemiah is so focused on these walls, did he mistake them coming to him? Because here's the thing. Zechariah was a prophet who lived during the rebuilding of the temple. He lived during that first part that we read in Ezra. And there's a very interesting prophecy that um, kind of changes your view on Nehemiah when you read it in light of these things. Specifically, Zechariah 2, 1 through 5, it says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what it is, its width, and what is its height, its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be glory in her midst. What's going on in this prophecy? There's a lot going on, I'll admit, but what we're, the picture is, is that Zechariah Zachariah is looking out, and he sees this guy with a measuring line. It's a tool that you would use to go measure when you're going to do construction. You're marking out the places you're going to build. And what seems to be implied is this guy's going around seeking to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And notice that an angel shows up to go tell that guy not to go build the walls. Because... He's saying that Jerusalem's going to be the city that's going to have so many people in it, and that there will be a wall, but it's going to be literally God is going to be the wall for them. God will be their protection. God is going to remove the reproach. And just a few verses in Zechariah 2.11, it says this, And many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Right? The picture is that Jerusalem should be this place where the nations come to meet with Yahweh. The nations come to serve him. Yet, we're reading a story about a guy who is rebuilding walls and turning away nations. And I do admit, the nations didn't come friendly, right? They were coming, they were jeering at him, they were making threats. But just because someone is hard to deal with, doesn't mean that God doesn't want to reach them. I think Nehemiah had a great chance because this was his first time. He wasn't in Israel those 50 years. He could have come and had a fresh start, but he doesn't do that. He pushes them away. 
which then makes us think, well, did Nehemiah not completely understand what his calling was? Because here's the hard truth when it comes to talking about calling that sometimes doesn't get talked about enough, is that God can often put a passion in our lives. God can often make us feel like we are called to do something. God can open all the doors, gives us the resources to do it, lays out the path so we just have to walk forward, and then we can mess it all up. <laughs> right? We get so focused on what we think we are called to do that we end up missing what God has actually wants us to do or what God was planning on doing through us. Or sometimes, and this is another hard truth, sometimes we can be following our calling correctly, but other Christians who think that they're following their calling or think they know what your calling is end up coming and messing it up. And I know this is true because I've experienced both of these things. I think God did want to, Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. I just, I, if you're wondering, should Nehemiah rebuild the walls? I think God did because God did give him everything. He opened the doors. He gave him the resources. He put that passion in his heart. Like if there's a, there's a, so many chances for God to have put a stop to Nehemiah if God didn't want the walls to be rebuilt. But I think Nehemiah, what we're reading that is in his zeal to do what he felt God was calling him to do, he just missed the point. So what? Why are we studying this? Well, Nehemiah is actually one of the most challenging books in the Bible because it's a book that on its surface seems to give us the keys to what it means to be a good leader. And there are things in there that teaches us what it is to be a good leader, right? Last week, we talked about being a person of prayer, how, how Nehemiah used prayer before he went and did stuff, right? And that's something that should characterize our lives. Like what Joel said earlier is true. We should be a people of prayer. And from what we saw here is that Nehemiah shows how when he, to lead a group of people or to get people on board with something, you don't force them to do it, but you try to share with them the vision so that they buy in, right? That's another great principle that we do that. We don't do it through manipulation or coercion, but through inspiration. But we also learn that sometimes if we misuse our calling, which if you're feeling called to do something for the Lord, the end goal should be to build up the kingdom of God, right? The end goal should be to bring people to Christ, to bring people to him. If you're following your calling, and by following your calling, you're ending up pushing people away from God, you might need to reexamine what you think you're called to do or how you're going about that. Nehemiah had a clear vision. Nehemiah was able to inspire people because they could see that he believed in what he said and what he was willing to do what he was going to do. And I think we should learn that, right? We should be like Nehemiah in those aspects. Because if we want to see people come to Christ, we should look passionate like we actually love the fact that we follow Christ, right? Nobody would want to follow our, nobody's going to want to become a Christian if we act like Christianity is the worst thing ever. If we're more excited about all these other things than we are about being a Christian, well, why would they want to be a Christian? Obviously, it's not as exciting as these other things that we are talking about. We need to be careful that we don't get caught up in, in what we feel that we're called to do, that we end up getting in the way, and we miss out on God's vision for the world. So two questions for you guys to leave you with. First, what is your calling? And second, are you missing out on God's plan because you are so caught up in your own? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much that 
Thank you so much that you actually have given us the Holy Spirit to help guide us in this. Thank you so much that as we seek to understand what it is you're calling us to do as a church, that you don't just do it, like you don't just leave us by ourselves. God, I pray that we would be sensitive to hear you talking to us, that we'd be sensitive to feel what you are leading us to do. But God, I pray that in our zeal, in our passion, in our drive to do that, that we make sure that we're keeping our eyes on you, that the task isn't more important than the people we're serving. God, thank you so much that you are a gracious and forgiving and just a loving God who works with people, that even people who mess up, even people who make mistakes, even people who miss the way, you still use them, you still use us for your purposes. God, I pray that as we come before you just today and every day, that we will seek after you, we will seek to build your kingdom, and we will seek to draw people in. We will seek to draw people to your son. And God, I pray that if we are doing anything that is pushing people away, that is making people not want to come and join your amazing, miraculous family that you have formed, that you would convict our hearts so that we would turn from whatever we're doing and follow after you. God, I just pray and thank you for all you've done and all you will do. In your name, amen.